you're visiting with us today, I'll just give you a little bit of an understanding of what our normal method is. We like to try to take a book and preach through the book from beginning to end. Sometimes we do topical things. Sometimes we look at other uh, ways of looking at the Bible. But that's our primary method. And right now we're in a study in the book of Romans. And what that means is that you pretty much have to take what the Bible gives you. And as you're going along, you can't skip things. And you come to some hard stuff. And believe me, there's some hard stuff in Romans. I'm pleased to see that there's still anybody here today after last week's sermon from Romans chapter 1. But we will uh, we'll see if anybody remains after today's sermon in Romans chapter 2. But this is hard stuff that Paul is talking about, and we need to slog through it until we get to the good stuff that comes afterwards. Well, let's start reading in Romans chapter 2 and in verse number 1. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of His goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds. Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. For as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law. And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them, in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, according to my gospel. Well, let us pray. Father God, we are so thankful for the Word of God, and I do pray now that as we look at it in this, this hard passage, that you'll guide us. I pray for uh, ears to hear amongst all of us. I pray for the filling of the Holy Spirit for myself, Lord, that you would help me to speak uh, that which I ought to, boldly where I need to. But Lord, protect me from saying anything I ought not, and help none of my own personal biases or, or, or personal thoughts to come forth. Lord, may I just preach your word clearly and accurately and practically and rightly. And I pray, Father, the Holy Spirit will work in all of our midst and teach us today. May we, Lord, be convicted if need be, by this passage. May we be encouraged, if need be. Whatever you have for us, we pray for it now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in chapter 1, which we just finished up last week, Paul has been arguing about God's wrath. God's wrath is revealed from heaven because of man's rebellion against Him. And he has been mentioning the fact that mankind, by nature and by action, is on a continuous downward slope away from God. Uh, We've seen that for the last few weeks. 
And we've also seen that that particular truth applies to the history of mankind as a whole. And it also applies to the individual working of God in our hearts and in our lives. It's a twofold application that we've seen these things apply to. And apart from God's intervention in our lives, we're all continuously trying to move away from God. Uh, isn't that pretty much what we've seen from chapter 1? I think so. In that chapter, Paul was primarily talking about a group of people, a class of people who have not even heard the gospel. Those whose understanding of the, of the things of God are limited to natural revelation, what they see in nature or what they see in their own conscience. That's what he's talking about in chapter 1. But now we come to chapter 2 and he's going to turn his attention to a different group. He's going to turn his attention to a group that would probably include people like us. He's going to turn his attention to a group of people who do know. He's addressing people who have some knowledge of the law, who think themselves in some way moral people, who think themselves in some relationship with God. Now, there are so many things in chapter 2 that we could, we could easily preach a sermon from every verse. One of the problems that I always have when I'm preaching through a, a, a book like this is, is how, how do we divide the thing up and, and how much depth do we go into? And uh, I will be honest with you that I find myself getting bogged down if I go too slowly. So we, I don't want to go too slow. So we're probably going to skip some things in this chapter today, which you may find interesting. And if that's the case, ask me afterwards. We'll talk about it. But uh, I want us to just look kind of at a high level at four things that we read here in chapter 2. And you might want to write these things down in your Bible. You might want to underline these verses. First of all, I want you to notice verse number 1. And I want you to notice that little phrase, you are without excuse. You are without excuse. Secondly, I want us to notice verse number 5. And I want us to notice that little phrase, you are treasuring up wrath. Third, verse number 11, there is no partiality with God. And fourth, verse number 16, I'm just going to pluck three little words out of the middle of that verse. God will judge. Those four things. And I think if we talk about those four things, we're going to get at least the gist of this passage of Scripture. You are without excuse. You are treasuring up wrath. There is no partiality with God, and God will judge. So let's look at those in that order. First of all, verse number one. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. You are without excuse. Now, as we previously stated, in chapter one... The emphasis could be described as the heathen world, those who, uh, who, who had an understanding of God, but it was limited. It was limited to what they could see in creation around them. It's limited to what they could understand from their own conscience and that inner voice within them. And we read Paul's conclusion about that group of people in chapter 1 and verse number 20 when he said that they were without excuse. They were without excuse because the things that can be known about God are known about God to them. And therefore, he said in chapter 1 and verse number 18, that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against them. But now we see Paul building on that argument. He's addressing this different category of people in chapter 2, not those who do not know, but those who do. And when we get to chapter to verse number 17 in chapter 2, we're going to see specifically he's talking about the Jewish people. Throughout the book of Romans, we'll jump around between Jewish people and Gentile people. We'll see those two different people, uh, two different classes of people dealt with. At various times, there is some difference of opinion amongst commentators and scholars whether or not the first 16 verses that we read are talking about Jewish people or Gentile people. Uh, there's arguments on both sides. 
But I'm not sure it matters. I think what Paul is talking about here is a moral group of people, a group of people who know, a group of people who think themselves moral and godly and view the the world and others through that lens. And to that group, and I think we'd have to say we're in that group, wouldn't we? To that group, he says they're without excuse. Without excuse. Verse number one. The heathen who ignore the light they have are without excuse, Romans 1.18, and the moral person who knows the right and judges others according to it, but yet doesn't live up to it, him or herself, is without excuse, Romans chapter 2 and verse number 1. I read an interesting blog posting this week. I'm sure some of you also read it. The author was taking issue with the use in American Christianity of the phrase, I am blessed. How many of you read that blog posting this week? I'm sure some of you did because one of our members, I can't remember who, posted it on Facebook. But the author's contention was very interesting. The author's contention was, we ought to quit bragging like that. We ought to quit saying, I am so blessed, and start to recognize that if we have been blessed by God, it is really a burden for us to bear. If God has given us something, he has given us something, that we ought to do something with it. It's what Jesus meant when he said, to whom much is given, much is required. It's what Jesus was talking about when he gave the parable of the talents and the parable of the pounds, when he said that a certain number of things were given to a certain group of people, and the ones who had been given much were expected to do more than the ones who had been given little. And this this person's contention was the same. We are a privileged people, yes, because God is expecting us to do something with those privileges. Well, I think Paul is saying something very similar here. I think he's saying that those who know the law, Those who have some kind of a knowledge of right and wrong, those who have some kind of a knowledge of God, are more responsible and in more danger than those he's been talking about in chapter 1. He ended chapter 1 on the note that they were without excuse, and he begins it here that we are also without excuse. It's funny, isn't it? We all tend to judge others more strictly than we judge ourselves. But we're all guilty, he says. And we're all without excuse. He's going to continue beating this drum until we get to chapter 3, until he reaches his climax in chapter 3 and verse number 23 when he says, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. He's building that case. It might seem a little tedious as he does, but he's just constantly just piling one brick on top of another until he makes that case. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Turn over with me to 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11. We're all familiar with the story of David, I think. Actually, not 2 Samuel 11, 2 Samuel 12. We're all familiar with the story of David and Bathsheba. You will recall that David committed adultery with Bathsheba and then murdered her husband Uriah to cover up the sin. You recall that. Sometime after that sin had taken place, God sent Nathan the prophet to David to have a conversation with him. And I want you to notice something from that little story. Second uh, Samuel chapter 12. Let's just read a few verses, starting with verse number 1. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. 
So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. And he shall restore fourfold for the lamb, because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would also have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandments of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me. Isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting that David wanted to judge another, but he could not see how inexcusable was his own sin. His heart was every bit as black, but he couldn't see it. He had no business judging others because he had too much in his own life to be judged. He was without excuse. And see, that's Paul's point. Paul is saying here that it matters not which group you can relate to, whether the group he described in chapter 1, which is those who have very little or no knowledge of the things of God, the heathen, if you want to use that term, or whether the group in chapter 2, the ones like us who sit in church, the ones like us who have Bibles, the ones like us who have some knowledge of morality and the law and the things of God, whichever one, he says, both are without excuse before God. Second phrase I wanted us to look at is in verse number 5. Verse number 5. You are treasuring up wrath. One of my favorite Christmas traditions is to watch Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. I, I think Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol is one of the greatest Christmas stories that's ever been written. And I particularly like the version that has George C. Scott in it. I watch it every year uh, at Christmas time. But whichever one you choose, it's a wonderful story. Theologically, it has a few problems. I wouldn't get my doctrine from this, but uh, it's still entertaining. In one of the least accurate scenes biblically, we see the hero, Ebenezer Scrooge, uh, is sitting in his sitting room talking to the ghost of his dead partner, Jacob Marley. You remember that scene, don't you? And they're having a conversation. I, 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 I want to read you a few lines. You see, Scrooge is sitting here looking at this ghost, and this ghost is wrapped in a chain. And this chain is festooned with all kinds of weights and heavy things to make it even heavier. And the chain wraps all the way around Jacob Marley's body and drags out across the floor. And he's dragging this clanking thing around. Let me read you a couple lines. Scrooge said, you are fettered. Tell me why. I wear the chain I forged in life, replied the ghost. I made it link by link and yard by yard. I girded it on of my own free will and of my own free will I wore it. it is, it's, is its pattern strange to you? Scrooge trembled more and more. Or would you know, pursued the ghost, the weight and length of the strong coil you bear yourself? It was full as heavy and as long as this seven Christmas Eves ago. You have labored on it since. It is a ponderous chain. Every time I read Paul's words in, in Romans chapter 2 and verse number 5, I think of that particular thing. It is a ponderous chain, Jacob Marley. Listen to what Paul said. He said, in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. One man paraphrased that, that verse as this. True to your own hardness, your own unrepentant heart, you are hoarding for yourself a wrath which will be felt in the day of wrath. 
hear what he's saying? Those who refuse to turn to Christ are forging a chain, a ponderous chain that grows link by link each day. They are treasuring up wrath. They are hoarding it up until the day of God's patience is exhausted and they come face to face with the extent of his wrath toward them. Jesus told the parable of the rich fool in Luke chapter 12. You've heard that story before. The man described in in those verses was concerned about his treasure. He was a hoarder. There's TV shows about hoarders nowadays. Jesus told a parable about just this person. He hoarded up his treasure. He stored it. And when he ran out of room to store it, he built bigger buildings to hold it all. And then one day God said to him, Thou fool, this night your soul will be required of you. And then whose will those things be which you have provided? In that parable, Jesus was describing the folly of hoarding worldly wealth and ignoring the more important things, the soul, the eternal things. Another place he said, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? That's what he was teaching there. But I think we could apply it to what Paul is teaching here in Romans chapter 2 and verse number 5. Just as the rich fool hoarded worldly wealth until the day when he saw the futility and foolishness of that. So all of us apart from Christ are hoarding, storing up, forging a chain of the wrath of God. It's the wrath of God. Earlier we learned, in another sermon we learned, that this particular verse pictures the wrath of God as being like water, slowly rising behind a dam until finally God releases it. So remember who, who, he's, who he's addressing here. He's not addressing the heathen in this passage. He's addressing people like you and I. He's not addressing people with limited knowledge. He's addressing people like you and I who have Bibles. You and I who go to church. People who have heard. And have a knowledge of God. And he's saying that it is people like you and I who, if we don't respond, are treasuring up wrath, hoarding wrath, which will eventually be revealed. Here he's saying, he's saying it's dangerous to trifle with God. He's saying it's dangerous to know of God and ignore the implications of that knowledge. He's saying it's dangerous to understand the demands of God on your life and to not do anything about it. To put off until some future time the things he demands of you. Interestingly, he said in chapter 1 and verse number 18 that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. Already. And we, we do see that, don't we? The wrath of God is revealed. We see examples of it all around. When he cursed his creation and expelled Adam and Eve from paradise into the broken and groaning creation that resulted from their sin, the wrath of God was revealed. When he sent a flood on the earth because he saw that the thoughts and intents of man's heart was only evil continually. (laughs) He destroyed the entire earth other than the few that were saved in the ark. The wrath of God was revealed. When he poured out fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah, the cities of the plain, the wrath of God was revealed. When he sent his armies into Canaan to wipe out the iniquitous nations whose uh, wickedness had reached the full mark, the wrath of God was revealed. But mostly, when He made His only Son hang on a cross for your sins and mine, when He turned off the sun and allowed darkness to reign over the land for hours as His Son became your sin, as He turned His back and could not even look at His own Son, 
because of the sin. When his own son cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was then that his wrath was revealed. Yeah, the wrath of God has been revealed, and we could talk about all kinds of examples. Those are just a few. Paul said in chapter 1, it has been revealed. But now here in chapter 2, he says, there is yet more. It's going to be revealed for those who are without excuse. There is coming a day when those who continue to ignore God will stand before him and experience the full force of it. Number three, look at verse number 11. Verse number 11, there is no partiality with God. I just want to mention this one. We're going to move past it because I think we'll talk about it more next week. But I want to mention it now because I think it's also the key verse of this entire chapter. I think it may be the theme verse of chapter 2. There is no partiality with God. In the next section, definitely, starting with verse number 17, he's going to be talking about the Jewish people and their particular privileges. And uh, he's going to talk about the fact that they are not in any some privileged position uh, that somehow exempts them from the demands of God from facing his judgment. No partiality. But I think it applies to, to, to all of us, whether a Pharisee or a Republican, whether a Gentile or a Jew, we all stand alike at the judgment bar of God. And God's expectations are the same. No partiality. One man said there is no favoritism in God's court. But we'll leave that one for next week. Well, let's look at the last one, verse number 16. Verse number 16, in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, according to my gospel. I just want to pull those three words out of the middle of it. God will judge. I can imagine that some in this room tuned this thing out about uh, 26 minutes ago when we started talking about this topic. Because this is hard stuff to hear. Anytime you start talking about the wrath of God... And especially now, this is uh, the sixth lesson in Romans. And Paul has been beating this drum. And so I can imagine that some are saying, okay, what time's lunch? There's got to be something better to talk about, something better to think about than for my mind to be concentrating on this matter of the wrath of God. Some people don't want to hear that. They want to tune it out. They want to ignore it. They want to hear only good things, only happy things. But I would suggest this morning that if that describes you, then you're the very one. That Paul's talking about. You're the very one most in need. You're the very one most in danger. Because if you're refusing to acknowledge God's demands on your life or even think about them, then you're the very one who's treasuring up wrath, the very one he's describing. In verse number 5. The very one who will soon face the judgment of God. God will judge. God will judge. God's judgment is a central truth in these verses. I could skip past that and I could try to come up with something more positive to say from chapter 2, but I'm not quite sure how I would do that. Nine times in the twelve verses, first twelve verses of this chapter, we have the word judge or judgment. God will judge. Because He has appointed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom He has ordained. In Romans chapter 14, he says, why do you judge your brother or why do you show contempt for your brother? We shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. In Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27, it is appointed unto man once to die, but after this, the judgment God will judge. So we can't get away from it, can we? It's a central truth. So there are four key thoughts, and there's many other things we could talk about from these verses, but four that we've looked at this morning. Number one, you and I are without excuse. Number two, those who refuse to turn to Christ are treasuring up wrath. Number three, there is no partiality in God's courts. And number four, God will judge. Let me just 
make three applications. How do we apply that to our lives? Three applications and I'll be done. The first application is pretty obvious, I think. The first way you apply this to your life is to recognize that it means exactly what it says and it applies to you. Every word of it. Every part of it. Every one of those four things applies to you exactly as written. You, my friend, are without excuse before a holy God. And if you don't turn to him now while he is patiently working to draw you to him, you'll soon experience the full extent of that wrath. There'll be no special favors granted at the judgment seat for you in that courtroom. Just because you sat through a few services at Friendship Bible Church will not give you much. You'll face the judgment of God. But see now the good news that we haven't got to yet in Romans. This is what makes it so hard to preach through something like Romans. Because I know the good stuff is coming. And the good news is that Jesus has already been to that courtroom. And Jesus has already taken that punishment. And Jesus has already taken that verdict upon Himself. But if you don't take His gift of salvation, every word that is said here applies to you. Every word. And you will face that wrath. That's one application. That's the most important application. Please hear that one if you hear nothing else. Turn to Christ and none of that is a worry to you. Ignore Christ and you face it all. The second application is this. We who have heard are the ones who are the most in danger. Remember who he's talking about here. He's making this point very specifically to a group of people who are like us, who have heard this. And he's saying, you are most in danger. You are the ones who are without excuse. I look out across this room and I think about the fact that there is no doubt some here who have heard the gospel preached from this pulpit multiple times and never responded. Maybe you've not just heard it preached here. Maybe you've heard it preached other places. Maybe you've read it. Maybe you've picked up gospel tracts. I don't know. You've heard the gospel and not responded. When I think of a person like that, I always wonder, what, what, are, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Are you waiting for the heavens to open up? Are you waiting for some sign? There's a comedian, a Christian comedian named Ken Davis. Tells a story about waiting for a sign from God. Talked about a guy who got on a bus. The bus was empty. And he went back and he sat in the very back row of the bus. And he bowed his head and he prayed and he said, Lord, if you want me to talk to somebody, would you give me a sign? A few seconds later, the bus stopped at another stop. man got on the bus, looked at the empty bus, walked all the way to the back, sat down beside the guy, and he looked at me and said, You know anything about Jesus? The guy bowed his head and he said, Lord, if you want me to talk to this man, would you give me a sign? I sometimes think, I sometimes think that's what people are doing. What are you waiting for? Other than the clear word of God, what are you waiting for to respond? Why would you risk all of the things that are described in here? Why would you continue to forge a chain link by link? Why would you continue to allow the wrath of God to store up and hoard up in your life so that one day it is released against you? When Jesus has already taken it all, then all you need to do is turn to Him. You and I who have heard are in the most danger if we do not respond. Finally, number three. And I don't know if this is really an application from this particular passage or just one that's on my heart, but I think it's true. I think I see this here. There is no tomorrow. You're out of time. Wednesday of this coming week will be the six-month anniversary of my wife's death. 
And so I've been reliving things as that landmark looms. And try as I might, I cannot come up with a more central lesson from that event than this. I cannot guarantee that I'll be here for another minute. And neither can you. You, like Beth, might decide to go to bed tonight. You might decide to go watch a movie and laugh at some comedy. You might go to sleep right before turning off the light and spend a few minutes planning your day for the next day. And then you may wake up in heaven. Or you may wake up in hell. You see, you're just not guaranteed of a moment. Not at all. You know, my friend, in these first chapters of Romans, the story seems so bleak. It seems so hopeless. Because Paul is building up to the good news that he hasn't had a chance to present yet. He has yet to get to the wonderful truth that the death of Jesus Christ on the cross satisfied all these demands of God. That the wrath of God, which sounds so horrible here, was appeased, done away with on the cross. He has yet to point out that the wages of sin is death, but, one of the greatest words of the Bible, but the gift of God is eternal life through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you stopped reading right now in Romans, or if you stopped listening to this part, you'd miss out on that great part. You might become disenchanted, but I encourage you to keep with it. The gospel, that's what this book is about. The gospel is good news. And we are getting there. But the good news will sound so much better when we realize just how bad the bad news is. And that's what he's been painting for us here.